we're continuing a series that we kicked off last week, looking at the book Song of Solomon and picking out some of the highlights through it. Um, I, I, I love the book. It's personally brought a lot of influence to my life and, and helped my marriage become better. And uh, I think uh, in counseling scenarios, it's had that effect on, on numerous other people through that as well. So I'd love to have you, uh, have you read that on your own. You're going to need some help at some point. Um, you know, there's different study guides that, y- that you can go through with that as well. And if you're wondering what, the, what they are, I'd be happy to, happy to uh, connect you with those. But yeah, so uh, before we get started, I want to make a bit of a disclaimer. Because what we're going to talk about is, is really for, for your average marriage, your typical marriage, some of the stuff that we talk about, if, if it's a scenario where the marriage is, is going through so much and, and had history for so long, it, it's hard to apply what we're talking about to every single situation um, in, a, in a sermon that's meant for an entire group. So, so understand that the nature of this isn't a one-on-one conversation. Some of the complexity that happens within a marriage setting really needs to sit down and just have a conversation uh, and not just hear a sermon. But that being said, um, I, think, uh, I think God's going to do some cool stuff this morning. I'm excited for it. We as a staff have been praying for this because we, uh, we know that you can just kind of go through the motions in marriage, go through the routine in marriage, and get comfortable, but not really have a great marriage. And my heart, because I think it's God's heart, is, is I want us to have a church filled with a bunch of great marriages. A, a church that understands what it looks like and we love and we consider each other and we pursue each other. Um, if, if your situation is not, not the ideal, right, or, or if you've uh, not been married and don't anticipate yourself being married, um, I, my heart is sensitive to you as we go through the series. And, and I want to let you know that I think the scriptures reinforce the idea that Christ will be everything for you that a spouse was not for you. And I think it's important for us to remember that and reflect on that, that, that at the end of the day, Jesus' love is far sweeter than a spouse's will ever be, uh, far more forgiving and far more loyal than they could have ever been to you. And I don't think you're going to get to heaven, and I don't think you will have missed out. And every, If anything, it might just be a little bit sweeter for you to, to find that love in Christ fully at that moment. So let's pray. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time this morning. I pray that you would just give us a hope to look at what you say about this, to see how it can influence us um, to, to love one another the way that you've called us to, Father. I pray just for your work in our lives and your healing where it hurts um, and, and your, uh, your hope for us for how things can, can become new. And we ask that in your son's name. Amen. So a couple years ago, actually actually probably about 15 years ago, I remember sitting, uh, sitting in a home waiting for the dad to come in. I, I was on a date with, uh, with his daughter. I didn't end up marrying her, so this isn't Corinne. Uh, don't get your stories confused. But um, I was waiting for the dad to come home and to meet him for the first time. And I was a little bit nervous, as you can imagine, being in that situation. But I thought, this guy is, is uh, he's, you know, a guy who's, uh, who's high up in his church. He's involved in a lot of things. Um, he's been a Christian for a long time. He's got to be like just the, the, the typical what you think a husband should be. And I remember sitting there, um, and he walked in the door. He walked in the kitchen past his wife and didn't say anything. I thought, that's kind of odd. And he came through the, through the dining room and into the living room, and one of the sons was in his chair. So the son got up and, without saying anything, walked and sat in a different place. The other son walked over, handed him the remote. And nobody has even addressed me at this point. And I'm thinking, like, I, like are you crazy? There's a new guy sitting next to your daughter in this room. I feel like you should probably 
Like, at least say hi to him. At least, you know, throw him out of your house or something. Like, some sort of interaction. And, and nothing. And about five minutes into it, finally, he speaks. And profound wisdom comes out of his mouth when he says, what's for dinner? <laughs> I'm thinking, what? Like, what, what, what is this? Like, this can't possibly be what God wants. And it was interesting because I grew up with, with a dad who came to know Christ later in life. And so, so I never had that. And I was thinking I'd see it. And, and I just remember thinking, like, that couldn't have been what the first date was like, right? Like, he couldn't have went to meet her at a restaurant and just and sat down and didn't say anything, just looked at the menu uh, and then ordered something without speaking to her. That couldn't have been what happened, right? Something had to change from the point that he met her, convinced this woman to marry him, and, and to the point where he could walk into the house and not even say hi or give her a hug. Something had to happen there. And w what I think I've seen through, through my experiences in my own marriage, through, through counseling and other scenarios, through looking at the scriptures, I think we naturally drift away from a place where we pursue another person the way that we did initially to win them. I think we naturally drift from that. If we want to have a healthy marriage, I think we have to fight against the tide. We need to fight against that drift. I remember when, when Corinne and I first started dating, and she was three hours away at college. Man, if she forgot something, I would drive, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll drop whatever I'm doing. I will drive six hours, three there, three back, just to do it. Look, this is how committed I was. I was hunting, sitting in a tree stand, writing a love letter to the woman who would be my wife one day. Because I pursued her. And, and I think what Song of Solomon presents is this idea of the, that that pursuit shouldn't end when we get married. That we should continue to chase after. We shouldn't get a recliner. We shouldn't get our TV station and forget about our wife. Forget about our husband. That we should continue to run after. I just don't think marriage is fulfilling that way. I've never seen any couple that's been in that scenario who, who, who are like, yeah, you should go out and get married. You should, you should really do this. This is an incredible experience. They're always saying, like, I don't know, you better know what you're getting into. I'm thinking, like, man, when God talked to Adam and Eve in the garden and he created this woman, he said a man shall leave his father and mother and shall join with his wife and the two shall become one. He spoke of something incredible. He spoke of a relationship that should be unparalleled with excitement and joy. Difficulty, for sure. But as we navigate our way through that difficulty, it becomes amazing. So, so let's throw back to last week. We talked about three different terms for love in Song of Solomon. And we talked about it like foundationally, there's the friendship love. And then on top of that, there's the committed, the sacrificial. I'm in this for you more than I'm in this for me. That love. And then on top of that is the passion which is what Song of Solomon is ultimately known for. It's the passion, and we talked about really how each of these elements is necessary on an ongoing basis for you to continue to enjoy what God has given you. And so we use that illustration of the friendships like a stove, and then you've got the pot of water, which is the committed love, and dode, that Hebrew word for passion, means to boil over, and it doesn't boil over without the other two elements. You need all three. And what we're going to talk about today is this ongoing pursuit of that. We gave you a definition that love is a growing friendship, new memories, new adventures. Love is a growing friendship shown by selfless service, producing a delight in another. 
that God wants you to keep trying to win them the way that you initially did. That you would keep surprising them, keep making them smile. Be intentional not to drift. Um, and, and so last week we talked about Song of Solomon 2.15 where she, in a plea to her husband, says, let's get rid of the, the foxes, the little foxes that ruin our vineyard. We talked about how in their culture the foxes would burrow under the vineyard, the vineyard would collapse, and, and it would be uh, just a real pain. It was an ongoing issue. So she goes, let's get rid of the issues that continue to undermine our marriage. This morning we're going to go fox hunting. We're going to look at two of the biggest biggest issues that, that dig that dig their, their tunnels underneath our marriage and cause it to collapse. But we're going to build, we're going to get there. Uh, we're going to look at their pursuit of each other, look at their story of their love and how they chase after each other. Honestly, we're going we're gonna to read their poetic song reflecting back on their wedding night. All right, so Song of Solomon, let, let's jump right into it. You're going to see innuendos here. You're going to see passion here. I want us to look at the principles that are, that are laying alongside those. So Song of Solomon 1, 16, um, he sa- she says this, How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming, and our, vet, our bed is verdant. So literally, she sees their bed as this, as this garden experience, full of life, full of fruit, just enjoying to be there. And, and then he responds, the beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. So let me clue you in on what's happening here. He's revealing to her the, the, the bridal suite, the honeymoon suite that he has built for her. And when he says the, the beams of our house are cedars and our rafters are firs, what he's talking about is that he has specifically had made for her a bridal suite that is reminiscent of the place where she is from. That he's had people go and cut down trees and bring them miles and miles away to construct a house that would have made her feel at home. And it's an extremely generous and thoughtful gift. And it presents in her a feeling of inadequacy, a feeling of, I'm not worth this. And so she says, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. And he says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among young women. She replies, like an apple tree among the, the, the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall. Let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. It's a phrase we'll actually spend all of next week looking at that last one there. But let's, let's pray. Ask God to teach us here. Lord, um, what we read here is this song, this sort of dance uh, of a pursuit of a husband and a wife. And, uh, and God, I pray that it would inspire us. Um, inspire us in two ways. First of all, for us to see and understand how passionately you pursue us. That you want us to engage in a dance with you as we love you and we care about you and we serve you. And you bless us and, you, and you fill us with joy. But Father, also that we would, we would bring a delight to another person. And that we would chase after them and win their heart. And we ask that in your son's name. Amen. So you have this sort of, this dance back and forth. He's pursuing her. She's pursuing him. That, that he's pursued her happiness. And in response, she's pursuing his happiness and and so it's a pursuit really throughout the book like if you're gonna if you're gonna read the book and again i hope you do it's gonna be difficult to navigate at times 
But what you'll notice, and, and you can't miss, is they keep pursuing each other. A pursuit through gifts, through, through their phrases to, that they say to each other through, with their words. Um, a pursuit of adoration and admiration. They're noticing things about each other that you really have to look and notice in order to appreciate. Uh, th- through, uh, through acts of service, through, through passion, they're pursuing each other. And, and really, this is how God romantically has wired us, that fundamentally, romantic love is two people pursuing the delight of another. You got one person and one person. They're each pursuing the delight of the other. That, that how they feel is not an afterthought, but it's a forethought. One, one of the challenges that I give new couples when I'm when officiating their wedding is I'll say this is, please make each other smile every day. Make them laugh. Make, make them impressed with something. Surprise them. Make them smile. Why? Because you keep, if, if you keep making them smile, you keep chasing after them. You keep finding creative ways to help them to smile. I know that sounds incredibly simple, but I feel like in my own marriage, it's brought so much power for me to pursue my wife with a single-minded passion that says, I could, I could let this drift. I could let this effort fade, but I don't think that's what God wants me to do. There's this ex- exchange that I think is really important where, where she is, uh, she's gifted this, this bridal suite and, and she says then, I'm a lily of the valley. And at first it sounds like, well, maybe she thinks she's pretty. She's actually very modest in her appraisal of herself. What she says is, I'm one of 10,000. So there's all these other lilies there. Why would, I, why would I get such love and such thoughtfulness and such sacrifice from you? Why me? Um, and, and so she's got this really modest appraisal of herself. And Solomon interrupts. And guys, if there's ever a time to interrupt your wife, it's when she's doubting herself. You have my permission to interrupt her at that point. And say, no, 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 you're not a lily of the valley. That's not true. You're a rose among thorns. You're a flower, yeah, but you got the analogy wrong. Nobody else out there is a flower. Just you. And it's a powerful, powerful statement. In fact, uh, I think it was Rihanna that wrote a song that, that went platinum in, in countries all over the world. I want you to make me feel like I'm the only girl in the world, like I'm the only one in the world. Why, why do you think that went platinum so far and so wide? Is it because cause it sounded cool? I think that's part of it. But I think there's part of it also that just runs, runs intuitively within the heart of, of women in the world because they want to feel like they're the only one. In fact, I, I, I did marriage counseling once for a couple, and one of the big things was he was watching a music video on TV, and she walked by, and, and this bunch of girls dancing around in bikinis, and he goes, he goes, man, she looks good. And he couldn't fathom why that was so hurtful to her. You know why it hurt? Because she was no longer the only one. Because somebody else could catch his eye. Somebody else could create a spark. Solomon rightly interrupts and says, that's it. I, I, if you're a lily, then everybody else is, is a thorn. See, this book is really centered around this single concept, uh, and, and we'll put it in question form. Do we let the person we're with be a target of delight? Do I look at them and say, God has placed me in their life to bring joy to them, to serve them, to, care, to, to be considerate, to be patient, 
We were going out to dinner the other day, and, and I was thinking through this concept, and uh, we had a gift card, and, and, and so I was like, all right, cool, we're going to use the gift card. And we get like halfway there, and she's like, I don't know where the gift card is. And what do I do in that moment? Do I, do I make her feel like, like she's messed up and this is the end of the world, or, or do I just say, you know what? It's all right. We'll just have to go on another date because she's a target of delight. And that, that's my purpose here, that, that our highest delight in life comes from enjoying God and serving God. And then second to that is in, in the romantic relationship of being able to bring delight to another, another human being, to, being to, to with, with our words, with gifts, with touch, with, with perfumes, with service, to bring delight, that we would delight to bring delight. The second we start to really get wrapped up in the where's mine, where's my delight, is the second the drift begins to fade. So you would understand that you should delight in bring, bringing delight. So he delights in, in building this, this wonderful suite for her, and she delights in being able to give him an unforgettable bedroom experience where they've, they've tried to win each other, and they have. They've won. But what's, what's so incredibly important throughout the book Song of Solomon is that he hasn't just won a bedroom experience. She's, she's allowed him, or he's won her whole heart. He's won all of her. He hasn't just won the passion, but he's won the commitment. He's won the friendship. He's won all of it. In fact, if, if you were to read through what we just read again, what, and, and you had the Hebrew there breaking it down for you, you'd understand that actually all three loves are referred to in that single statement we just read. That he loves her, he's, he's the beloved, he's the friend. That the dough, the passion is all of what they're experiencing in that moment. And then central to it all is this statement that she makes in 2.4. I want to read it for you, Song of Solomon 2.4. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. Uh, so you know what's going on here? Like they're about to enter into the bridal suite, um, and she makes this statement, let him lead me into the banquet hall. Literally in the Hebrew, it's let him lead me into the house of wine. Keeping with this theme that this experience is made by God to be an intoxicating experience you share with your spouse. Let him lead me into the, to, to this banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. And it's a reference to military banners that when they were victorious, they'd, they'd come home waving a banner to show that they have won, that they've been victorious. She goes, let him take me in there because he won. He won me. And I want the world to know it, that he has won my friendship, he's won the commitment and the sacrifice, and he's won the passion. He's won the whole, whole heart. I mean, this is the goal. This is the goal of marriage, that, that as we would reflect Christ's love to us, that that someone else pursues us so considerately, so patiently and passionately that we grant them the privilege of intimacy. And, and by no means do I only mean physical. I mean whole person, relational intimacy that they've won us. They've won my trust. They, they've won my vulnerability. And, and I think this is ultimately what we really crave. For me to say, you, you've, you've gotten this. You've chased after me. And I want you to enjoy this. So, so I mentioned we'd go fox hunting, right? So this is where we go fox hunting because I want us to see where this breaks down. Because I want us to see where delight, if it's met with instead of this, this, this welcoming and the, this supporting, if it's met instead with rejection, then that's where, that's where the real difficulties of marriage happen. 
is how do we handle, how do we navigate rejection? Um, and so imagine, imagine for a second if Shulamite, the bride in this instance, if she goes, I, I'm, so, I'm so unworthy of this gift, Solomon. I, I'm just a lily of the valleys. Imagine if he says, you're right. Like, doesn't that just, I mean, we talk about killing the mood, right? Like, yeah, you know, you are a lily of the valley. There's a lot of other valleys out there, but you're, you're just one. Imagine, like, how she would feel in that moment. She'd be crushed, right? Imagine if when he brings her into the bridal chambers and says, like, hey, these are from your hometown, if she would have been like, oh, you could have, we could have used the money on something else. Wait, wait, are you kidding me? I don't really like cedar. Like, it smells. Why don't you go with oak? How would that have been received, right? And, and so I think what we see are, are the potential for two particularly deep cutting foxes to live in our marriages. And so, uh, again, from my experience, from, from a number uh, of counseling interactions, from what I think we see in the scriptures here, there are two things that each of them are seeking after in this exchange. And if they're not met, if, if they're not handled cautiously, I think it leads to a, a breakdown. I think the fox is running crazy in your marriage. There's two things you're chasing after. I think he's seeking, I think he's seeking to know that he can win her. And I think she's seeking to know that he, she is worth winning. He's seeking to know that I can win her. She's seeking, seeking to know that I'm worth winning. Right? And, and so as, as we look at that then, I don't think there's anything that will be, more di- will be read as more disrespectful to a man than to feel like he's not capable of winning. He's not capable of winning your heart. And I don't think there's anything that will cut quite as deeply for a woman than, than for her to know that, that she's not worth loving to the point of being won. And I've had countless times countless times where husbands and wives are talking through things in, in my, my marriage and uh, marriage counseling and, and going, he feels like he can't win anymore. And I'm going, she feels like she's not worth being won anymore. And at the heart of this is that fundamental breakdown is who does the dishes or whether or not you work an extra 20 minutes or, or like those things are at the background of what is at the core. And the core is this, is there a continued pursuit? Can he win? And is she worth being one. See, if, if a man can't win, you know what he does? He tends to quit. I'm not saying it's right, but it's common. If a man realizes he can't win, he tends to quit. You know what happens if a woman isn't special? She feels like she's not worth winning. She loses a spark about her. She loses a joy that is part of what makes her so incredible. It just starts to fade. And uh, th- they're just, I've seen it so so many times over and over again that we've got to be so very cautious of the messages we send one another. Because if he can't, if he can't change, if he can't make up for what he's done wrong, if he can't live up to your standards, if he can't make you happy, if he can't be like your father, if he can't make enough money, he will want to quit. He will want to quit. And, and he can't, he can't, will burn a hole in his ego quicker than anything else. I've seen it too many times to ignore it. You ever want to see a guy lose his mind? Give him something he can't do. I remember we, we bought some, some piece of furniture, and I for some reason thought this will show up all put together, uh, and it didn't, and it came in a box, and, and 
I remember looking at it thinking like, okay, you know, there's got to be instructions. And it's not, you know, like, just so you know, I'm not like chief handyman around the house. So for you, this might not be a big deal. But for me, it was, I go to get the directions out and there are no directions in English. There are directions in like four other languages. And I remember initially thinking like, okay, I got this. I'll figure this out. There's, there's pictures here that appear to be somewhat helpful. And within 20 minutes, you would have thought the entire world was falling apart because my, my, like my reaction was so childish. I was mad at everything. If anybody walked in the room, they were getting some part of my attitude be, because I couldn't do something. And I was looking for outlets to cope with that and deal with it. And again, again it's, not, it's not right. I should be able to handle that. I should be able to respond more in a better way. But man, we just don't like you can't scenarios. We don't like them. So women, wives, if you imply that he can't, I want you to know that you're telling him he can't win you. And I think that's what you want. I don't want you to set him up for a scenario that he can't win in. If you're too emotionally unresolved for him to figure out, he's going to sit there and go, I don't know what to do. This is, I, don't, I don't get this. And he's probably going to quit. And then I've got to come along and say, hey, man, y- you shouldn't quit. It's worth figuring it out. It's worth solving this puzzle. But if you could help me and make it easy for him, let him know exactly what the instructions are, that, w- that would make your life a lot easier. You can let him know how to make you happy. Don't, please don't ever make him guess what's wrong. He's not going to do well. I've, I've talked to, to couples who, who they, for years, for decades, they're going, he should know what's wrong. And I'm like, maybe 10 years in, you've got to figure out he doesn't. Like he's, just, he's not going to get it. And so make it really simple. If he can't, he'll quit. I remember doing a, a marriage session at, at a church and, and teaching through a lot of this stuff. And there was one section that I thought, you know, these couples all tend to be a little bit older. I don't know that I need to include anything about the, the role of, of, like, the, the external families in the marriage. It's like they've probably got to figure it out. They've all been married for about 15, 20 years. And as I was prepping, God was like, no, you need to touch on this issue of, of how, how we respond to parents and, and in-laws in our marriage and I thought, all right, I'm going to put it in there. So I put it in there. Afterwards, this guy who I know has been struggling for years and years and years in his marriage, he comes up to me and he goes, that's exactly what I needed here. I'm like, what? Like the stuff about how to chase after her, the stuff about how to handle money. And he goes, no, the stuff about her dad. I was like, what? You guys have been married for like 30, 35 years. He goes, yeah, and I've never once been able to be her father. Yeah, I can see how that would crush you. Because he couldn't. And he lived un- un- under that weight. You guys, we have the responsibility to solve, solve a puzzle. Figure it out. Figure out how to chase after it. You were good enough to do it at the beginning of the marriage. Right? And so we keep going. If he can't, he'll probably quit. Make it easy for him. Let him win. If she's not. If, if she's not. And this is the version that I see. So I ask for some grace in this, women, as I try to speak to what, what goes on in your head. I ran this past most of my female staff and asked them because I didn't want to speak up here uh, completely ignorant, but this is what I've seen. Um, if she's not smart enough, if she's not pretty enough, if she's not like the other girls, if she's not that important, she's not capable, if, if she's not worth your attention while the, ga- while the game's on, she will begin to lose a joy about her. They tend to be the things that cut the deepest. 
And so when she, she puts herself out there, she says, I'm a lily of the valleys. This is an incredible, incredibly vulnerable moment for her. Because she's going, I'm not worth winning. And he goes, yes, you are. And guys, that is our job over and over again to build, to reinforce the self-worth, self-worth uh, of our spouse. Do you realize that, that God puts you in her life to help build her, self, her sense of self-worth, not to destroy it? That, that's one of the primary reasons that you're there. God goes to extreme measures to make sure that you know how valuable this woman to be, should be to you. In Proverbs, she, he goes, she's worth far more than rubies. In Colossians, he says, don't be harsh to her. I remember sitting across from my father-in-law-to-be and, and asking permission to marry his daughter, and I said, I won't be perfect at this, but I want you to know I'm going to try very hard never to be harsh with her because I know how important she is to you. And God the Father is her ultimate father. And he goes, don't be harsh with her. First Peter, you know what he says? If you don't live considerately and patiently with her, I'm not going to answer your prayers. Read it, First Peter chapter 3. He cares more about the way you treat her than about your spiritual requests. In Deuteronomy 24.5, he goes, if a man is married to a woman for the first year, he's not to go off to battle. He's to stay home and attend to his wife's happiness. And a man in that culture would have been like, are you crazy? There's battles all the time. I'm supposed to sit here while they're fighting that battle out there. My dad is out there. My brother's out there. And I'm supposed to sit here? And God goes, yes. He says, I can win that battle out there without you. I cannot win this battle here without you. It's a powerful statement that God says, husband, her happiness is more important than national security. You win this battle. You win it at home. That's how important this is to God. When she does something seemingly without thinking, when she does it different than the instructions that you, that you laid out there, do you destroy her self-worth or do you reinforce it? Do you build it up? We have incredible influence on her self-worth. She's not just a part of the house. She's not another tool in your shop. She is a God-given gift to cherish and to chase after and to build up again and again please do not assume she knows how you feel she probably wonders it far more often than you think build it up with your words with your gifts now if you're going to go on vacation let her let her heart be what's at the center of your plans chase after her ladies if your guy is not like this if you've never had a man who's run after you like this um, it, I want you to understand the way God reveals himself to the nation of Israel. As he looks at, he looks at their inadequacy, he looks at what they've struggled with, and he comes along to encourage them. In Isaiah 54, he says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is, call, he is called the God of all the earth. And so while your husband should be there supporting and encouraging this, by all means, God is there when he's not. His voice is louder and more faithful and more devoted to you. See, I, I go here, I address these, uh, these two foxes that if he can't, if she's not, because I think we've got to get rid of it. I think we need to build into us a language that says, you can win me, and a language that says you are worth winning, because that keeps the pursuit going. And that's, that's the, the scripture lays out this idea that, that marriage between a husband and a wife should, 
should mirror that love between God and the church. Right? So we know that Christ continues to pursue after the church. He doesn't say, okay, you've come to a knowledge and relationship with me, now you're on your own. No, they can, he continues to pursue and to guide us. And the church, by all means, doesn't say, okay, Jesus, thank you for your love on the cross, and we'll see you later. No, we regularly pursue after him. Everything we do is a chase after him. And so there's got to be a consistent intentionality here where I think our marriages sometimes struggle from a sin of omission. We stop chasing and pursuing the way God wants us to. Is, uh, I remember as a, a young teen watching the, the Seinfeld show with my parents. You remember Seinfeld? We'd always watch it together. And I remember getting to the very last Seinfeld, so spoiler alert here. Uh, the last Seinfeld, the, the whole show, is, is about they see this, uh, this man and his car being hijacked. Right? It's the country town setting, so they as New Yorkers, they're not really that, they're not bothered. They see it all the time. And so they just stand there making fun of him. And they literally just mock him the whole time. And, and what turns out is they end up being arrested and put, put on trial for the Good Samaritan Law, for failing to help out somebody who's in need, for not having an interest and a passion in somebody else's problem, in someone else's struggle. I think we have a sin of omission in our marriages where we just stop chasing after. And I don't think it's how God wants it to be. I think he wants more. You know, the, a, a great spouse will seek to amplify the self-worth of the person they're with. You just keep running after that. Keep going after that. Telling them that they can win. Telling them that they are worth winning. You're a lily of the valley. Or I'm a lily of the valley. No, you're not. You're a lily among thorns. So, so much of this, by the way, is determined... Um, and, and I debated all week about whether to tackle on this little part at the end, but I, I think it's extremely, I, I, I see it all the time, right, in, in myself and in other people. So much of this is determined by how we view the other person, by what, what sort of, we can say, what frame we put around them, right? So, so we see them the way that we want to see them. And, and, and our past with them, our words to them, have shaped the frame that we put around them. And we begin to expect them only to be the person in the frame. And if they've hurt us, that defines us. And so now we're always fearful that they're going to hurt us. And we continue to treat them in a way that supports the frame. And if they're not really in the frame, if they've done something outside, then we kind of we put them right back in it. All right, so let, let me give you a scenario from the book Leadership and Self-Deception. He talks about this concept, and he talks about a teen who asked permission to, to, to take a car out to go hang out with his friends, and the parent who thinks the teen is rebellious, who thinks the teen is always going to let him down, and, and they framed him as a failure waiting to happen. Okay? So the parent says, you can have the car keys, but if you're in here a second after 10 o'clock, you're never going to see that car again. So they give the teen the cars, uh, the car keys, the teen drives off, and, and what's the parent doing the whole thing? The parent's going, I know what he's going to do. He's going to roll in here at 10.30. I'm going to have my punishment. I got my speech ready. I'm going to tell them this. You, you, you got to be responsible. You should have accounted for traffic. I know what your excuses are. Give me the keys. You're not going to see that car again. Whole time, the parent's putting him in the frame. And then what happens? The kid comes home right at 10 o'clock. Like right at 10 o'clock. What does the parent say? Does the parent say, great job. You're responsible. 
you did it, I was wrong. No, the parent says this. You sure cut that close. I would have thought you'd been a little more responsible and be here five minutes early. Right? Because the frame didn't quite fit, so I'm going to re-justify, I'm going to retell the story so that it fits my narrative. I, I think this happens in our marriages. I think, I think we become so prone to expect them to be who they are that, that we're not willing to consider that, that God might be doing something different in them and changing them and reshaping them, or maybe even that we've seen them wrongly. I, I think we're prone to this in a marriage that we expect of them certain things. And here's the problem. We as human beings are quite good at figuring out when a frame has been put around us. We're quite good at it. We know when a boss doesn't think that we can be all that we believe we can be. We know when a parent isn't proud of us. We know when a coworker talks about us behind their back because they're just waiting to make fun of us. And so think about that then. If you're going to live with somebody else and do marriage with them, and you've got that frame, and you're holding them to it, do you think they know it? I do. I think we see them through the frame of all the ways they've let us down. It builds up, and it boxes them in. So the question is, what frame does God want you to put around them? And I present to you the frame of 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Now watch this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. That's how God wants you to frame them. That we would see our spouse through the lens of grace. And every letdown is a new one. That we would look at them, look at them through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. That if I see a resurrected Jesus, I should see a forgiven follower of mine. Not through the frame of all the things that I've held against them. We, we attach a frame and we become so committed, so committed to justifying the story that we've already written about them that it's like we don't want them to change. And I think they feel that. I think they feel the way that they can't or she's not. We have an expectation that they'll continue to be who, who we think they are. And that expectation encourages them to stay that way. I uh, injured my, my wrist a couple months ago, and it's taken a while to go up through the chain of doctors and get to the point where, where I've got an MRI and now i got to go see a specialist. And, and there's a part of me that has gone through all this effort and put all this, this time in, and, and uh, my my wrist is, you know, is hurting, and, and it's a weird tension because I want to go to the specialist, and I want to be wrong, but I don't want to be wrong. Like, I want to be wrong that there's nothing bothering me, but I also don't want to be wrong because if I'm wrong, then I'm probably, like, a little bit crazy, right? Or I'm a little bit weaker than, than, than maybe I thought I was, and, and so I really don't want to rewrite the narrative that maybe I'm wrong here. What 1 Corinthians teaches us, we should want to be wrong. We should want to be wrong. That they can change. That I have been too critical. That I've told them they can't win so many times that they gave up. That I've implied to her so many times that she's not worth winning. 
because she lost her spark, lost her joy. I want us to want to be wrong. It's a weird thing to say that. But I want us to see with new perspective what God is trying to do. And maybe, just maybe, your new attitude is going to be part of chasing after them and helping them to be who God wants them to be. We did a podcast this, this last week. Uh, I think it's coming out t- uh, tomorrow or, or this week sometime. Um, and with, with Barry Payne talking about how, how he didn't want to change and, and how she was like, he needs to change, he needs to change. And she kept praying, God, change him, God, change him. And, and you know what God laid on her heart? You change. You change. She's going, no, I don't like that. He should change. And God's going, you change. And she started to change. And you know what happened? She goes, I'm not worthy of this. Man, if she treats me like this. Wow, that's incredible. They turned their marriage around. Because what happened? She said, I'm going to let him win. I'm just going to let him win. And he said, wow. She is worth winning. Tell you, tell you one more story, and then we're, then we're going to wrap it up. Um, <coughs> apologize, we've, we've gone over twice. I'm like, that's a big deal for me. I, I like to stick right to the time that we try and stick to, but th- this last one was pretty cool. Um, a couple years ago, actually uh, about eight or nine years ago now, I did a wedding for a couple, and I was doing their pre-marriage counseling. And I do this thing where we talk about strengths and weaknesses, right? And I, I go, you know, what do you think the strengths are of, of them? And I asked him, and he said, and he didn't, he didn't try t- to hurt her. He just was young and was not good at communication. He said something that really hurt her. But I said, what, what are her strengths? And he said, I don't really know. And I, I could see her just kind of, just a little bit of anxiety. Because she's not, right? She's not worth winning is what she felt. And he realizes he hurt her, but he doesn't really understand it. He, d- he doesn't know fully how, how to express what it is he appreciates about her. So I asked him this week, I said, I'm going to preach on this, this topic we talked about. I said, would you mind like, telling me from your perspective now, like, what are her strengths? So he says this, she's a better companion than I ever could have imagined. We do everything together. She sticks with me through everything, and I can't believe how tough she is in so many ways. She is my best friend, and I love, uh, I love doing everything with her no matter what it is. I don't even want to do the things that I enjoy and love doing without her. She is cautiously very adventurous. It really creates a bond in us that translates to everyday trials, and we know that we will make it through anything together. I often pray that God never takes her away from me. Run after. Run after each other. And if you're single, man, run after Jesus. Run after him. Pursue him on your own. Pursue him in the quiet. Pursue him at work. Just just run after him. And see the beauty that is in him. See the way he cares for you. We're not made to drift. We're made to run after Jesus Christ. And secondarily, after our spouse. Let's pray. God, you're incredible. And I thank you for the way that your love meets, meets the heaviness of my heart, meets the fears of my life. And yet so many times the frustrations build up and we put a frame around. And we do that really to protect ourselves because if we expect disappointment, it's not so disappointing when it shows up. So God, I pray that we'd be a people with hope. 
And we understand that our attitude has a hearty influence on the people around us. We look to them with new eyes. God, your, your love, that you have given us this gift of romantic love, I pray that when we, we show up and we meet you face to face, we're going, thank you. Man, for, for years I didn't see it. But then I started to chase after and I started to, to view them the way that you wanted me to view them. And man, that's awesome, God. So thank you. I pray that's our prayer, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.